Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for May 29th, 2016. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, On Worth and Worthiness. I wish I hadn't spent all this time writing this sermon today because I could just about go home after that, you know. I have just finished writing my first book. A friend is editing it for me, and then I will decide what to do with it. It will likely get published on one of those self-publishing online sites, and I'll make it available to friends who will download a copy and not read it just to make me feel good. The effort reflects just a personal discipline to think through in a systematic way the statement Dr. Frank Tupper made in that theology class so long ago, God always does everything God can do. What do you mean, can do, somebody asked, and that's where it all started. My book begins this way, God is not omnipotent. There, I've said it. If that first sentence hasn't scared you away or offended your spiritual senses, what you will find in this book is my attempt to tell you what that unorthodox declaration means to me and how I have come to be able to say it even comfortably enough to make it part of the repertoire of my public preaching and teaching I will try to tell you why the statement, God always does everything God can do, has deepened my faith. And I will try to offer something akin to an old-fashioned testimony, an apologetic for the God in whom I now place my trust, who is, I believe, more credible to a sophisticated 21st century world, more capable of touching people's real lives in real ways, and more powerful. Yes, the God who can't is more powerful. Well, you can download your copy when it comes out if you'd like and see the rest of it. If you had to identify what is most essential to the character of God as you understand God, what would it be? What would you say is the heart of the very nature of God. The premise of my book, which is entitled The Power of the God Who Can't, is that we have misunderstood God for a very long time. For all of the self-conscious history of human beings, we have conceived of God and understood God. We have related to God around a locus of power. God has come to be known as all-powerful, and our reverence, which has rightly been called the fear of God, has been based too often on just that, fear of God's power. We are frail and finite, and we cower timidly under the watchful, mostly disapproving, if not joyfully wrathful scrutiny of the Almighty which, by the way, is a designation that I refuse to use of God. My thesis is is that this God of all power, 
is a deity we have created in our image. Out of our love of control and power, And I believe if we could disabuse ourselves of this selfish notion and see God for whom Jesus says God is. If we could see God for whom Jesus demonstrates God to be, it would truly, if we could truly understand and trust in our hearts that God is fundamentally love, not power, I believe it would change our hearts and would literally change our world. But in our world still, power is God, so God is power. And everything gets filtered through that lens, seeing God as power, the most important thing there is. Power becomes the frame through which we reference history and relationships and even our own identity and worth. It's a sad story of our history. Amy's and my sons, Jackson and Bennett, seem to be more and more out of the house these days, so Friday night we went on a date. It was a little like practicing the empty nest with training wheels, you know. We saw the movie, The Man Who Knew Infinity, which is the beautiful and gripping story of Srinivasa Ramanujan, a mathematical genius born in Madras, India, around the turn of the last century. He was brought to Trinity College, Cambridge, England, where his uneducated brilliance could be properly refined through the scorn of the pompous elitism of that form of British academia. Tensions of power run throughout the story. The plot transpires during the First World War and the conflict between Britain and India are played out in the xenophobic hatred of the dog-faced Indian a shameful disrespect heaped upon Ramanujan, even by those greatest of the world's brains. There's the power struggle between the Indian mother and her daughter-in-law, whom the young visionary is forced to leave behind when he boards a ship for that foreign land. The superstitions and convictions of religious tradition are seen between the boy's cherished Hinduism and the polluting practices of Christianity to which he is introduced. There are the power struggles within the ivory tower as well as the tensions between the time-tested practice of academia and the unschooled intuitive genius of Ramanujan. All of these power stories are played out as Ramanujan's brilliance is slowly, reluctantly accepted for what it is. All of these tensions, these power plays, however, are not what the movie is about because power is not what life is about. Beneath it all, There is an important player in the story, a deeper current in life. And the movie tantalizes its viewers with this spiritual truth. Infinity is not a mathematical formula. 
but can be found only in the equations of love. Love between friends, love between lovers, and the love of God. Now, all that I've just said is just an introduction to this wonderful story of Scripture that Amy just read to you because that story is usually understood around the locus of power. We are told that Jesus has power over the demon or the disease that is threatening to take the life of this centurion's beloved servant. And the Roman officer represent, respects Jesus' power because he also has power. Power speaks to power. The writer of Luke's gospel does a masterful job of highlighting a number of the power plays that are also evident in this story. I hope you heard them as Amy read. Between the Romans and the Jews, between the Jewish elites, those insiders of Jewish religion, and Jesus, an outsider, an unorthodox, untrained rabbi. The writer makes clear the very stratified world in which Jesus lived, the rules of dominance and submission that structured life, officers over soldiers, masters over servants, the educated over the uneducated. The story, as most of us have been told it, is a miracle story, the purpose of which is to prove the divinity of Jesus, which was self-evident based on his supernatural power over the natural world. It's a story of power. The pagan military officer is praised for having greater faith than all of Israel because he believed, more than they believed, that Jesus had such limitless power and this centurion placed his trust in Jesus because he believed Jesus could be relied upon to use that supernatural power for the centurion's own need. I think this is not what the story is about. Let's make it clear that attributing to Jesus the supernatural power over demons or disease would have been no issue for a first century gospel writer. It is only our modern mind that braces against such a claim. We know about forces of energy and pathogens of disease. We are reluctant to see Jesus with power over, but they would not have been. So Luke could very well have been writing to affirm that Jesus had this power. I just think if we read more closely, we will see something else. I think this is true of all of Scripture. If we'll read more closely, we'll find something else going on. Again, our need to see all things in relationship to, to power forces us into an interpretation of Scripture that is not necessary, an interpretation that might actually be harmful. So, Luke may well have believed that Jesus had such power. On the other hand, he leaves room for some doubt because it's not even clear from reading the story at face value what Jesus did, if anything, for the centurion. 
The officer had said all Jesus would have to do is speak the word and the miracle would be done. Hearing this, Jesus proclaims the centurion a man of the greatest faith, but there's no indication that Jesus actually spoke that word. The friends of the centurion just go home and find the slave in good health. Did Jesus respond? Did he speak the word? Was it just the centurion's faith on its own? We don't know. The point I'm making is just that if we want to or need to hear the stories of Scripture affirming power, affirming hierarchies of over and under, of right and wrong, of good and bad, of insiders and outsiders, we will find that. You can read that into all the stories of Scripture, actually all the stories of life. A priority of power, you can read that. Supernatural over natural. Laws and legalism over liberty. Truth over infidelity. But maybe that's just our need to hear that. You know, they say if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Maybe we love power so badly, long for control in every aspect of our lives. Maybe we have so framed the entire narrative of life around power that we see it everywhere. And you don't have to be a totalitarian dictator of a nation to be a megalomaniac. I'm talking about the desire to control our own lives, to control our children, or to control our parents, to control our health, to control our careers, to control our schedule, to control the weather. I hate when it rains on Sunday. People don't need another excuse to miss church. I want to control that. Maybe we read this story and instantly see power over as the theme. And maybe we need to look again. Throughout our Bible as a counter to the narrative of power that seems so obvious, a subversive prophetic word is also being spoken The centurion was a man of great power, the content of whose faith was that it allowed him to exchange one power for another power for his own good, or so we are told. And that story will preach, folks. That story will preach because we want to be told that there's a power out there, and if we have enough faith, we can get that power to work for us, too. Isn't that what the story means, the way you've heard it? If you have the faith of the centurion, you'll get your miracle too. Because it's about power. Trust Jesus just like the centurion, and Jesus will give your miracle too. Can I get an amen? But this story turns on the centurion's use of the word unworthy. 
where the Jewish elders had defined his worth in earthly powers. The Jewish elders had defined his worth in terms of earthly power, power structures, and wealth. He built our synagogue. He's worthy. He's a man of power and wealth, and he works for us. Do what he says. He's worthy. On the other hand, the centurion seems to understand intuitively that there is something deeper going on in life. The faith which Jesus praised was not the man's resourceful use of his position to manipulate Jesus, which would be an exchange of power for power. The faith which Jesus praised is this man's relinquishing of power. It is the humility of saying, I am not worthy. Now the lesson in the text for today is not an encouragement to self-flagellation. I'm not smart enough. I'm too fat. I'm so terrible. I'm not worthy. No, there's far too much self-abuse in the world today. Please do not go there. Faith is not about self-hatred, but it is about humility. Studies show that the more money and success people have, the less religious they become. They don't need it anymore. The temptation to define our worth in terms of money and comfort, which is just another way of saying we've got the power we need, well, that temptation is almost irresistible. Jesus praises this man who in his social setting was almost all-powerful. But Jesus praises him because he comes to realize as every single one of us will one day, one way or another, that all the power he possessed counted for nothing regarding the things that matter. His worth came from finding himself unworthy. When money and comfort and power failed him, as it always will, eventually, He turned to a different kind of power. It is the power of self-awareness. I am powerless. Faith is the recognition that our worth is never self-made. Faith is the willingness to admit our need. And in admitting that need, we find a greater power For as the Apostle Paul said, God's power is made perfect in your weakness. May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, 
social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.